Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Idly hey! Welcome to another episode of The Brett Allen Show. Prepare to be astonished! A pop culture podcast. Join Brett Weekly as he interviews your favorite celebrities from film, <gasps> oh, television, I'm back in business, baby. comedy, and much more. Inconceivable! Plus, you never know who will stop by. Dude, we are so going to party. Now, here is your host, Brett Allen. Another holiday edition of the Brett Allen Show, a pop culture podcast uh, where we interview your favorite actors, writers, celebrities from film, television, uh, music, comedy, and more. Really, the depths of the universe uh, when it comes to pop culture. And we have, as I always say, a very special guest today. Um, if you've heard of shows that you love, like Ghost Rider, Girl Meets World, uh, Boy Meets World, Grown Ups, The Closer, I mean... Literally, the list goes on and on. Then our next guest uh, you will love, Mark Blutman. He is a writer, producer, uh, consulting producer, executive producer. I mean, all of the things uh, for all of these wonderful shows. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. My my pleasure. It, it, I, I guess in some way it means I've been doing this a long time, that I've gathered all those <laughs> all those credits and titles and all that stuff. And uh you know, I know you're mostly going to want to talk to me about my writing and producing all that stuff, but you mentioned you have a lot of actors on here. And and for those who dig really, really deep, we can go way back and talk about my starring role in a classic called Meatballs 3 with Patrick yes. Dempsey. Yes, we're Patrick going to talk Dempsey. about that. Oh, my gosh. So you you really did go deep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. We're going to talk about that. Trust me. Awesome. Um, we are going to talk about that because... Um, I mean, that's just in itself. Let's just start there because you, you are an, you were an actor, are an actor. I think once always, in my opinion, um, you know, in some way, shape or form, but, um, yes, let's talk about that because your career is very spanning. And, and of course the writing part is definitely, um, fascinating, but the fact that you started as an actor and then sort of moved into these other facets, um, is great and and I think happens a lot but it doesn't get a lot of attention so that's the other part that I think is great so let's talk about this because um you know we jokingly say you've done this for a little while so you have a little bit of experience but before I even want to talk about that I, I just have to ask because I know on your Instagram account you say the main street cred with your kids is that you know uh push a teeth <laughs> which is funny so let me just ask right out of the gate. Do they really get or do they care about your, all of these iconic things that you've been a part of? Or is it more just kind of like this is dad's job and this is what he does to make a living? You know, my, my boys are 21 and 23 now. So it's kind of, you know, they've been a big part of my career from uh, Boy Meets World on to, you know, the stuff I do now. And and I, I think they have more fun with it. You know, they okay. they they have watched Boy Meets World, uh, most of the episodes. They have not watched Ghost Rider. I try and get them to watch. They won't. But I have pictures. Every time they mock me with their friends, I'll just like bring up pictures on my phone of them on the set, sitting on a chair with headphones <laughs> on, paying attention. Pictures, you know, with 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 Danielle, you know, who played Topang and Ben, who who, who played Corey. I, I'll remind them that they were one point in their lives 
they thought dad was pretty cool. And now yeah. it's all mocking. They'll be on Discord with a bunch of friends or, you know, and <laughs> I'll hear them laughing. I'm going, what's up? Oh, we just, you know, found scenes from Meatballs 3 and we're watching and and, nice. and we're laughing. You know, so it's the, there's a lot of good natured mocking. That's funny. Yeah. Did they ever do extra work and things like that in scenes? Did you ever, were you one of those dads that said, hey, we need to fill in some, um, you know, let's say a classroom or like a, a playground or lunchroom scene. Did they ever no, get Brett, plugged uh, to do any of that? I, I, they didn't. No, I offered it a couple of times. They weren't interested. Okay. Uh, you know, they both adore sports and, you know, they're okay. finding their way and building their brand uh, in sports. Uh, my younger one, Luke, my 21 year old, he, you know, there's a, a, a project I'm developing right now uh, called Gripped, which is uh, about high school and college football and opioid addiction. It's a one hour YA drama. It's pretty heavy. Okay. And he's like, you know, pops, I'm, I'm Taylor Duncan. I'm the lead. I'm the quarterback who, you know, you got to just give me a shot. And I don't know if he's serious or not. I'm like, dude, if you want to be an actor, you know, go for it, you know, get some headshots and study. And he's like, nah, you know, I just, I want you to cast me, just cast me. So <laughs> I'm not sure if he's messing with me or he really wants to do it. He probably would be good. And the reason I say that is because I don't know if he's telling the truth. You know, he there you go. I mean, that's he may the be whole working thing about me. acting is believable. Yeah. Believability. Well, let's start from the beginning and we'll just work our way forward here. So you started out as an actor um, recruits. That was <laughs> uh, a Canadian film that was sort of the antithesis or answer to the Police Academy franchise uh, that was kind of around the time. This was like billed as a essentially a Canadian sex romp comedy, um, which like the Police <laughs> oh, Academy movies yeah. were. Now I'm very curious because are, are you are you Canadian or what? How did you get into the business? I mean. Because that's kind of like interesting for like a first kind of role as far as sure. like so being in projects and things like that. To answer the am I Canadian? So I was born in the States in New Jersey. Okay. And my mom is from Montreal. Okay. And one particular day, I'm about two years old and she went grocery shopping with me and she's carrying me back to the apartment in Newark, New Jersey. And the elevator doors open and she walks in, grocery bag me in an arm and the elevator walls are covered in blood. There was a murder oh in the elevator. So she said to my dad, I don't want to live here anymore. Let's go back to Montreal where I'm from. Wow. <laughs> and my, my dad as a, you know, obedient, you know, uh, please his wife, uh, no matter the cost man uh, said, sure. And so I grew up in Montreal and like most Canadian kids, you know, three, four years old, my parents threw me on a sheet of ice and I had to fend for myself, you know, in the States, they'll throw a kid in a pool of water. He's got to come to the surface and swim in Canada, throw them on ice, get up and skate. And I was pretty good. <laughs> and so yeah. I grew up playing hockey and uh, I was recruited by a bunch of schools, uh, University of Vermont, Middlebury College, Bowling Green. Uh, my claim to fame uh, in hockey was at the age of 12 years old. I played against Wayne Gretzky. Okay. And uh, in a tournament in Ontario, and he scored 11 goals on me in one game. Wow. So 
<laughs> you know, um, I was his favorite goalie ever. Um, and so, you know, at about 16, 17 years old, I, I was being recruited by these schools and I, I tore my knee up and it was that simple. Like, and back then the rehab was too intense. The surgeries were more invasive. It's not like now they go into orth orthoscopic surgery and you're fine. So I, my hockey career was kind of in jeopardy and, uh, I started doing stand-up comedy at 18 years old. Right. A club in Montreal open called uh, Stitches. And that's where Howie Mandel got to start. I think at that same club. Well, he actually. Or Yuck Yucks. Yeah, yeah he started at Yuck Yucks. I've actually known okay. known Howie since 79. Uh, uh, He's been on the show before. He's great. Yeah. He's just such a nice person. Yeah. So uh, we, we've been tight for, gosh, 35 years. Uh, something like that. Maybe more. Uh, he played Stitches, um, but we had met in Toronto. So anyway. That was kind of the start of it, you know, I, okay. I, I, and then I from there, I developed a, a character called the Crusher comic uh, <laughs> nice. where I dressed up as a wrestler. I had a mask on so nobody knew who I was. I had tights like Ric Flair kind of sequined robes with love it bedazzled all <laughs> over the place. And I would literally come out to Eye of the Tiger and airplane spin people from the audience and throw them down on the floor and elbow smash them and yell at them. And what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? I might have, shut up, shut up. Nobody cares. Nice. That was it. I would just scream at people and wrestling was really, really hot at the time. Hulk Hogan, you know, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, all that was. And next thing I know I'm headlining comedy clubs, uh, headlining, you know, galas at the just for last festival. I'm on the cover of Wrestling World magazine with the Road Warriors. Yeah, I mean you can I mean, and listeners, you can Google all of this. This is so <laughs> this is why I find you so fascinating, my friend, because of all the things that you have done. I mean, it's just crazy. I'm a like, unicorn. I'm a unicorn, Brett. I mean, you know, you 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 fall in love with something and 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 I loved showbiz you know i just loved yeah. it and and that's one of the things now i mentor a lot of young writers and stuff and i talk to them and i see all the execs how you know our we don't even call it showbiz anymore it's called the industry or the entertainment yeah the industry you know the industry i mean you might find a few um i had corbin bernson on recently and i i said let's talk about your new picture and he like paused me for a second <sighs> It's like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 47. He goes, I think it's great that you say picture when you talk to folks. Don't change that yeah. because it's just, you know, it's a different time than it is now because, and we can talk about this at the end, sure. but really just kind of like, it's it's the industry now. And literally like, if you have a phone and you have the ability to write something down, like, of course it takes connections sometimes most of the time maybe but it's really just it's accessible to anybody really yeah, absolutely uh, you know with the content and, of, that you can create and, and, and brett i'm okay with change and things evolving and you know certainly i do as well i you know i stay up to date and i know what's up and all that stuff push a t there you go but but i do i think there's a an aspect now that's a little too sterile for me sure and, and, i could see that and and, and Back in the day, man, you know, like 
I'd be hanging around with, you mentioned Howie Mandel was a guest. And like I said, Howie, I've known forever and we're very tight. So we'd go, I'd go on the road with him when I was in my twenties and hang out and Frank Sinatra would be, you know, at the same hotel in another room, whatever. And we wow. would just hang and hang and watch Sinatra and talk to the, you know, people that traveled with him and hear these stories, Don Rickles, all these people, Jerry Lewis, Sammy Davis Jr. You know, there's a picture of, of, of all of us, you know, uh, in Lake Tahoe with Sammy Davis Jr. And, and I just don't feel that the, you know, people today have that same love affair with the business, yeah. they go into it for different reasons. A lot of them, and I'm not blanket statement. No, no, I don't all. think that you are, but it's a very true statement. Like, honestly, like today, a lot of it is driven, driven by like social media and like, um, you know, whether or not somebody gets cast in something can very well depend upon what their social media following is like and how many, how big their YouTube channel is yeah. and all of this different stuff. I get it. It, it. So I I don't think that you're talking in terms that are unrelatable. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Honestly. And, and you know, so I, I would read all these books about the people that came before me, because if I was going to, you know, walk along these roads that they paved, I want to know who paved them, you know? And right. I, I, so for me, you know, as a writer, for instance, I, you know, Mel Tolkien and of course, Norman Lear, who won't stop, which is amazing. 91 right. or two, whatever, uh, still on sets and all that. But, but, you know, Mel Tolkien, as I said, and Stan Daniels and Gary David Goldberg and, 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 and all these great writers. And, and I was so blessed and I know, you know, we're kind of jumping around and I'll get that. That's okay. It's totally fine. I was so blessed that one of my mentors, like my first uh, scripted sitcom was a show that we actually shot in Toronto called The Mighty Jungle. And okay. my boss was Bernie Ornstein of Orn wow. Ornstein and Turtletop, uh, a Canadian who made it huge in, in, in Hollywood. He, he ran shows like The Monkees and That Girl and Sanford and Son and Kate and Alley and What's Happening and What's Happening Again. And he was a legend. And so he was like my first boss. And I would just watch him like and be in awe. And everything good that I do when I run a show, I, I took from, from Bernie. Um, and so I was so lucky. But his partner and him, they used to work, you know, with Jackie Gleason back in the day. So I, I, wow. I love all that. So for me, when I started, it truly was a love affair. So I'm doing stand up. And at the time, and this will bring us back to recruits and meatballs and all that stuff, there was a ton of production in Canada. There yeah. was a huge tax break and all these films were shooting there and they would get, you know, big government rebates and stuff. So if they put a million dollars into the budget, all of a sudden it would be two million because the government, the film commissions and all that would add. And so, um, you know, I started going out on a, uh, these auditions and, and I had an agent and uh, she said, Mark, there's a lead role and it's the only lead they're going to cast locally. And it's you. It was a character by the name of Andy. And he was a wheeler dealer. You know, uh, the movie took place uh, at a lake where all the kids hung out, you know, over summer break. And uh 
I was this guy that was taking bets from all the kids and hustling. I was a hustler. And I went and, and read for it and they loved me. And then I met the director and, and uh, I remember his name, George Mendeluck, and he loved me. And, and, and they said, uh, you know, I said, who else is in it? And they go, well, this young new star, Patrick Dempsey. And I'm like, wait, I just saw a movie he was in. Um, I think it was heaven help us or something like that. It was, Heaven can wait. No, it wasn't heaven can wait. That was, you know, heaven, okay. It, it, it sounds familiar. But anyway, it was all these young, you know, up and coming actors. Uh, Mary Stuart Masterston, who went on to amazing things, was in it. And Patrick and I, you know, we we hung out. We, you know, shared a a, a, a suite in Montreal during filming, and you know, we became really tight during that time. And. Um, and then, you know, the story of how I kind of pivoted and ended up doing other stuff. So I did some other things that I was in a show called Hill Street Blues, yeah, which was a, a great, great one hour um, police drama from MTM Studios with Dennis Franz. And and just uh, it was a great show and it won a ton of Emmys. I was in that. Um, I did recruits as we talked about recruits had uh, a young actress by the name of Lolita Davidovich yes. who went on and played the lead role in a movie called blaze uh, with Paul Newman blaze was a big uh, you know, she was a big kind of uh, vaudevillian times uh, adult entertainer uh, burlesque. And, and that was the character blaze Lolita uh, played blaze. But anyway, um, the turning point for me was there was a big, you know, uh, premiere night for Meatballs 3. And in my head, I'm telling my parents and I'm telling my friends, <laughs> I'm telling everybody, this is it. I'm the next Bill Murray. I'm the next Robin Williams. I'm the next. Interesting. I mean, I'm a lead role in this iconic comedy, not Meatballs 2, Meatballs 3, because Meatballs 2 wasn't very good, but Meatballs 3 is amazing. Sally Kellerman was in it. Patrick, who was, a, like I said, a rising star. I said, this is it. Like, I'm I'm a made comedic actor. And I go to the premiere and I took my brother and I like, <laughs> like an idiot. I had a tuxedo uh, with yellow converse, a yellow cummerbund and a yellow bow tie. And, and uh, <laughs> the movie comes on this giant screen. And I'm in it right from the beginning. My name's on in the beginning. And as the movie continues, you see me sink lower and lower into my chair. And I'm, I'm like, this. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm quite sure. <laughs> I turned to my brother and I said, am I as bad as I think I am? <laughs> and he said, probably worse. Wow. And Talk I just about a humbling moment. It was I, I just didn't, you know, and, and 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 that's how I felt when I watched myself. Whereas as a writer, I never felt like other, you know, then my work's awesome. Like, you know, some scripts are better than others, but I never had that self-doubt. And I didn't want to keep acting if I constantly had that self-doubt, which I did. I didn't think I was any good. And I would go on auditions. And here's an example. Here's a story of how bad I was. So, you know, I, I would hang on the set of St. Elsewhere. You know that okay. show? That was Howie's oh, yeah. show. One of the greatest medical dramas ever. So I would, you know, hang on the set while Howie worked. And I'd meet everybody. And I became friends 
with one of the executive producers. Uh, the people who ran the show were uh, Tom Fontana and John Macius, two brilliant writers that have had stellar careers. And John Macius and I became really good friends. And he had a, uh, a table hockey game in his office. And I love table hockey, knob hockey, some people call it, you know, all those men, 6'6", six, six, and then you have the little knobs to work it. It, it, it. It's awesome. Google it, get it for Christmas. It's been around forever. So we would play table hockey. And finally, you know, he's getting to know me and he says, uh, I, I, I want to put you on the show. You're here every day, hanging out, watching how we work. You're a funny guy. I really like you. I want to put you on the show. And I, I, I said, great. Uh, and, and, and so I met the casting director and he'd bring me in when there was a role that was right. And I, I never got it. Like I, I, they'd say, oh, you just you weren't perfect for it. There was somebody else that came in, but, but we'll find something. And two or three times, like they wanted to give me the role and I just couldn't nail the audition. And then Masha says to me, he goes, he goes, Blutman, don't F this up. I wrote the part for you. It's in your voice. I want you to play the gardener, the landscaper for Dr. Mark Craig. Ironically, that was Bill Daniels, who I'd go on and, and, yeah. and work with, Feeney, for years. But anyway, he's like, I wrote the part for you. I'm like, cool. I audition, and the casting director's like, um, okay. I said, you want to see it another way? He goes, better? Can I see it better? Like they were comfortable <laughs> enough with me to be that honest. And I wow. said, that's the note, be better. He's like, yeah, Mark, just be better. And I did it again. He goes, okay. I'll... And, and so then the next day I have a call back in front of John Macius and Tom Fontana and, and Mark Tinker, who was directing. And I walk wow. in and I do it. And John Macius, who had a, a, a temper and, 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 and he just, you know, he he just was himself. He was, you know, loud and brash and all that. And I did the scene and he took the script and he threw it at me. And he went, Jesus, I wrote this part for you and you can't even get it. And and I that's so I walked out of there. I was crying. It's like they wrote the part. And my thing was. I just, again, I had so much self-doubt as an actor. Uh, I never had it as, as a stand-up. You know, Crusher Comic was amazing for me because when I moved to L.A., I had the act. I became a regular at the comedy store, and I'd go headline clubs, you know, yeah. one or two weeks um, every month, so I'd have money to pay my rent while I pursued, uh, you know, other things. But I'd go, like... I became the Orkin man. I got a commercial. I was the Orkin man where I was in the white thing with the red stripes, Orkin man. And I was up in an attic looking for bugs. And, and th th those were the kind of jobs I was getting. And then, yeah, I'm doing the crusher thing. And, and I was doing well, but again, I had so much self-awareness that, you know, I, I looked up to people like Robin Williams and, 
Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and Sandler was breaking and all these people. And I went, I'm not as, I'm just not as good as them. I see why they're stars. And by then, you know, I'm doing the act crusher comic and the mask and all that stuff. And then in LA, I would take the mask off halfway through the show. So casting directors and stuff could see, you know, what I looked like, but on the road, I did the character, the full time. And, and, and so there was a night in Pittsburgh where I decided this was the end of of me doing this uh prior i got into trouble actually in las vegas i was headlining a comedy club in uh bally's catch a rising star okay and i got a call from my agent who said well congratulations you're the first comic i've ever represented that is banned from vegas for life <laughs> I'm like what did i do well during your show a couple weeks ago uh, somebody claimed he got injured, ripped his knee up during your show. They sued Bally, settled for a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. And I'm like, that didn't happen. But I guess, you know, we've always had people that are like, ah, here's an angle. You know, I'll just pretend I got hurt. There's no proof. And, and so somebody, so that was the end of Vegas. But here I am in Pittsburgh. And I did this, <laughs> I did this thing at the end of the show where I'd be like, you know, Crush would be up there just, you know, in his tights and mask and just going. A lot of people in the audience, they come up to me after a show and they're like, Crusher, what's wrestling all about? Is it a work? Is it a shoot? You know, tell us the truth, man. Is it real? Is it fake? Like, come on, talk to us. And I'm like, brother, you're going to have to find out for yourself. So if there's anybody in the audience that's man enough to come up here, I will show the audience what wrestling's all about. And there's always going to be one guy that comes up and he comes up and we do a whole thing and we end up attaching ourselves with a chain because it's a chain match. And then just as we're about to go, I pull out the iconic Rock'em Sock'em Robots game. Nice. And we end up playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And of course, my little robot has a mask on just like me. And uh, blood, there's a little pump where blood comes out of the robot. I had it rigged and it was just a fun thing. And the audience had a good time. Anyway, this one night in Pittsburgh, where me and this dude, and I usually, if a guy is too hammered, I would never call him up because, and I didn't think this guy was hammered. And he comes up and we fasten each other by dog collars with a chain. Like, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I whisper, I'm going to, I'm going to fake, fake like I'm hitting you. Just kind of turn your head. He goes, okay. And I do this and he doesn't move. And then he takes the chain, wraps it around his thing and cold cocks me, knocks, wow. knocks me to the ground. Security, the two bouncers come up on the place. They take him, take him outside the club. And that was it. And, and I, I'm like, if I'm getting knocked out during my comedy show, I got to find something else to do. And so that was pretty much <laughs> that gig at, at the Improv in Pittsburgh, a great club where Dennis Miller started, Mario Joyner, a lot of great comics started there. Um, I just, I, I went, I got, I got to find something else to do. And so I made the pivot to writing. That was around 1991. And that's okay. kind of where my writing career started. And, you know, I've been in the WGA since then and still doing it. Yeah. I mean, just so many amazing stories and projects. Um, I've, I've heard, um, yeah, you, going back to the turtle top, I'm just kind of a 
curious moment. Is it any relation to the John Turtletop? Just that. Okay. So, who does, yeah. who did all the Don Simpson, yep. Jerry Brookheimer films, The Rock, you know, yep. just, you know, uh, Face Off, you know, all of those um, Nicolas Cage films for the most part. I mean, there's other things in there that he did. Bad Boys, you know, all of that. Yeah. So, so it's his father. Yeah. Okay. Saul, Very interesting. Saul Turtletop was his father. And then Bernie okay. Ornstein who's uh, Saul passed away, I want to say about two years ago. Bernie is still around, retired, uh, lives in Connecticut. Ironically, uh, his nephew, Andrew Ornstein, who's a phenomenal writer, worked on Everybody Hates Chris, Third Rock from the Sun, Malcolm in the Middle. He was running Ghostwriter, and then he knew me from the Mighty Jungle when I worked with his uncle Bernie. Okay. And I helped him. He wrote his first scripts on that show. And we, you know, I would give him notes and be patient. And I knew he was super talented and I just got along great with him. And 30 years later, he hired me to come and help him with ghostwriter. Wow. Which was amazing. I mean, it's a small pond. So you've obviously, we know you, you boy meets world comes along and then girl meets world here as of recently back 15 17 um sort of a reverse uh look at the story and so i'm very curious because when we have these great television shows like 24 and other things that have just lasted forever you know blackish and um i mean there's just i can't even think of them all because there's so many um obviously actors play a big part in carrying a show but the writing, that's really where I'm asking and assuming a little bit. That's, I mean, that's really where the success of a show is going to rest. Is that correct? Would that be a fair assumption? I mean, You're... I don't want to, I know people crap on writers all the time. Wow. 24 didn't last because the writing sucked. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, but to keep a show going, it's the writing, right? That really helps. That's and so, then yeah. of course, whether or not, you know, networks decide to pick it up or sponsors pull out or whatever can happen to a show. I mean, some get ordered to pilot, some get ordered to series. uh, But the writing is really where it's important, I would imagine. Yeah. So you're, you're not wrong, but there's more to it. Listen, I believe here's my take on it. Listen, it's got to be on the page to some degree. right? Right. Right. And especially for longevity. It's got to, okay. there has to be some uh, consistency and, you know, uh, really resonant emotional storytelling. But I always say to have a successful television show or film, you better pray to the casting gods. Yeah. Well, of course. Because I mean, it's, listen, again, you know, the easiest example that people understand is friends. Would yeah, that show sure. have worked with six other people? Probably not. Probably not. And I mean, they, I think they even had like maybe one or two other people who kind of started out the show. I mean, that happened several times on a lot of, especially in the 90s. Well, Fresh Prince, I mean, that's an example of switching, you know, out characters. But I mean, I guess that's a little bit different kind of a situation. But yeah, I mean, like even shows recently I can think of where they've had actors and then all of a sudden another season comes on and it's like somebody else playing the wife or the husband. Sure. 
because for whatever reason, it just doesn't resonate with the right people. I'm guessing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's funny that um, there's more technology and Silicon Valley approach to our industry now than ever before. It's all about the algorithms and numbers and this and that. And, 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 back before there really was a more concerted effort to test each character and you would really get feedback as to which characters were working and which weren't. And I don't know if that necessarily goes on as much anymore. Uh, I don't know if, you know, the, the streamers really, you know, roll up their sleeves and, you know, say, Hey, hey that the, the fifth lead, what's the testing? Like, I think they just care about the overall, you know, number and formula. Yeah. And does it work for, for them? Well, I think that's pretty clear. Um, because I mean, before Netflix sort of switched leadership, you know, it was a bunch of part twos and part threes of things and stuff that didn't really do well in theaters and, now it's really become a conglomerate uh, as far as like content. Like, I mean, it's putting out actual feature films, obviously, uh, that maybe they want to put out sooner, or maybe a theater doesn't, or a, a, I don't know, a studio would rather put money in here because they don't have to worry about this out or the other. I have no idea. Um, you've obviously, I'm sure, seen Entourage before. Sure. Uh, we had Doug Ellen on over a few weeks, months ago, and we kind of talked about, because he's obviously a writer, and sort of his way he did things uh, was sort of counterintuitive to what the industry uh, wanted. And then when he got that show, like, they could give a crap about him. They just wanted to make sure that he was going to be able to write. And then, of course, he eventually, you know, the show became very successful and, you know, stunt casting left and right as sure. far as people coming on. Um, but it, so it kind of depends on both worlds to decide if a show's going to last. So let's talk about this. Um, I mean, everybody has, I think most everybody has seen Boy Meets World. You do that show, it lasts for a long time. It's great. It goes off the air. And then somebody decides, let's do a Girl Meets World. I'm very curious. Like, was there hesitation in your mind to go back and say, okay, um, do we really want to do this again? I mean, what was kind of, I mean, you don't have to get into specifics. Yeah, no, but I'm I very don't, curious sure. because it's kind of like, you know, obviously the Cobra Kai's and all of that have done quite well, probably better than the movies did and exposed people to a different audience. And this show introduced a different generation. Um, I mean, of course you had the older, you know, legacy cast, but then you had new people too. Sure. Like, is there hesitation in that conversation where they're talking about doing something like this? Yeah. And it's like, so Do we really want to like go back and revisit this. Like, let's look at the problems we had before, if any, and can we sort of refocus this and make it relevant for a different crowd? Right. So let's keep in mind, you know, and there may be an exception or two that I'm not aware of or it's slipping my mind, but we were one of the original uh, reboots, if you want to use that term or, Oh yeah, or, for sure. Or sequels for sure. or we called it a continuation. We didn't think. Yeah, we, you guys you know, were you're a pioneering kind of absolutely what, what everybody's doing now. Yeah, it seems. <laughs> and so Michael Jacobs, the creator, um, you know, he was approached a, a couple of times. There was a big gap. I think we finished 
Boy Meets World in 97, 98. Yeah, 97. Something like that. We we actually all did a show together. Michael, uh, myself, Jeff Manella, Matt Nelson, uh, the original boy guys, uh, called Lost at Home on ABC, which was one of the most underrated sitcoms. Uh, we only did one season, but it, it was so good. It was with Connie Britton. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, Mitch Rouse and the late, great, and one of the true, uh, you know, I mean, one of the most talented people I've ever worked with, Gregory Hines, uh, yeah. was on that show. And a- anyway, so we had done that. And then, you know, um, I went on and, and, and did my thing and, and you know, did uh, So Little Time with the Olsen twins and and uh, Grown Ups was in that time. And, you know, did a, I directed a movie and I was busy, busy, busy. And then, uh, you know, when I would talk to Michael or Jeff or Matt, you know, he they, it became apparent that people would bring up the subject of doing a, some type of a reboot. Um, and Michael wasn't interested. He just wasn't really interested. Um, and then there was an executive who now uh, works at uh, McGee's company, Wonderland. But at the time, he was a big exec at Disney named Corey Marsh. Okay. And Corey was a product of, you know, 90s pop culture and Boy Meets World was his favorite show. And to this day, um, I believe he still has it anyway, but he had a license plate, you know, uh, Feeny One or something like that. I mean, he (laughs) adored it. And he always had in his mind, like people loved Corey and Topanga, you know, what up with them? And so he had a meeting with Michael and he said, have you ever considered, you know, doing it? He goes, well, I've been approached a couple of times. And, and Corey says, no, we should do it right here at Disney. I mean, yeah, you know, it's so on brand. And, uh, you know, Michael said, well, the only way I would do it is if it was Girl Meets World and Corey and Topanga had a daughter and it was the world through her eyes. And, and, and he went, I love it. And he took it to Gary Marsh and Anna Bennett. Uh, Gary was, you know, the president of Disney uh, television and, and, and they, they said, okay. And so that was it. I mean, it was that simple and the process was not fun. I will say this, we shot the pilot. I want to say in uh, 213. Okay. And Disney has a certain style. Uh for the most part, it's a little more broad and, you know, it's closer. It's not quite Nickelodeon, but it's a little closer to that. And everything is big and loud and there's no nuance. And if you know my work and Michael's work and Jeff and Matt, we're emotionally driven no matter. Right. I mean, every now and then we'll do a broad episode, but even no matter how broad the episode is, there's going to be at least one or two moments that are going to tug at your heartstrings. And, and, uh, you know, I try and bring that to all my writing now and, and, and Michael, to his credit, he taught me, um, you know, early on, he said, anybody can make an audience laugh, but if you make an audience feel they will come back, whether they can articulate that being the reason or not, they'll come back because people like when something tugs at their heart, makes them feel good emotional, whatever. And so the other thing about us, if you know our work, is we don't write down to kids. 
you know no no there's no punching down Yeah, no. no pandering at all no punching down as you say and so disney during the week of the pilot was having a problem you know kids don't talk like this rewrite it and we're like no our kids talk like this and nobody will know what that word means well they can google it you know or ask their parents <laughs> and it will yeah. it'll start a conversation at the dinner table so that's healthy and, and so we we were rewriting constantly um the whole week and there were three days in the process where we didn't sleep at all like we literally 24 7 we would catch an hour here and there and 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 they adam bennett you know gary was overseeing but adam bennett was the hands-on executive and and he just didn't like what we were doing and he didn't trust or believe us which is part of the problem in our business is there are too many non-creative creative executives that really don't trust the artists because that's what we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's unfortunately, I think why, and that's that part's getting worse. Why you wind up with, for lack of a better vernacular garbage, or you're just like, why like this makes no sense. You know what I'm saying? Or you see a a show that comes on and you're like, didn't I just like watch this like two months ago, but there's, you know what I'm saying? And you go, well, this, yeah. this is like a very similar to um, a story. I mean, I, and there's this whole thing and I, I kind of, I don't like to say this and I had said it in past interviews and someone who I had on who was in a remake, I won't mention the name, uh, retelling, sort of corrected my thinking in a very sweet way she did. Um, and it's easy to become jaded and say, well, Hollywood doesn't come up with anything new and they just crap on all of this stuff. And sometimes that might be true, but really like when you're sitting down to create something like, you know, it's, that's why I wanted to have you on really is so people understand that like, it's a hard job. What you do is hard. Absolutely. And this next question I ask every single writer, I had one of the uh, showrunners on from law and order. And then I had Doug on, Uh, I had, uh, the creator of uh, the uh, I can't, nah, the name is Com- Homeland, the writer, creator, showrunner. Do you enjoy writing? Is it fun for you or is it a drudge? But then when you're done, you're like, you know, and I'm not leading the witness, but I'm just curious, like what your experience is personally. Um, I mean, obviously a show like Boy Meets World, Girl, you know, ghostwriter where you're, it's a machine and things are moving. But when you're sitting down to create something new and fresh, like some of the things we mentioned, is it a joy for you or or what is your experience like writing? So I'm going to give you two different answers because I have two different (laughs) answers and it's a great question. I love the question. When I'm working on a series that's on the air, the writing process is less joyful. My, uh, you know, shining moment, uh, are when we wrap the episode and the cast comes out for a curtain call and the audience goes crazy. They They loved it. it. They love what they saw. That's the moment that I enjoy the most because the the process is, is different because we're, we're collaborating and we maybe threw a script out after the table read and we have three days to get a new show on its feet from scratch. So it's a lot, lot of work. Um, the last plus you're also especially back in the 90s and, and, and 2000s we had giant writers rooms 14 oh yeah it was a 18, whole different 22 ghostwriter 
26, the first 26 episodes that we did, six writers, six. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, unbelievable for me, the last year and a half has been uh, a lot of development. I wrote a feature that uh, we just sold that's going to shoot this summer. Um, and then I developed Grip that I mentioned earlier about uh, high school, college football and opioid addiction based on the best selling books, Grip. I wrote another comedy feature. Um called the equipment guys kind of like adam sandler's uh the water boy uh, but it takes place at hbcu and it's uh about the equipment guy uh and it's uh we're trying to uh we're dealing with his agent now this comic named drewski uh drewski's really big on ig uh funny guy he just opened for j cole on tour anyway and then I had another show in development called Mickey Fabulous about a 15-year-old uh, female Jamaican boxer. So those were four projects that I just got to sit and write. Gotcha. And there was nothing greater. I enjoyed every second of it because it was me just tapping keys. And that's it. And I love it. That part, I love. So while I do enjoy you know, being on a show and creating with other people and collaborating, the actual joy of writing is nowhere near the feeling I get that, you know, I get when I write Fade Out on a movie that I wrote on my own or a pilot like Gripped when I write Fade Out. And, you know, it's a show about addiction and recovery and mental health. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just wrote this, you know, most of my career is, is you know, comedies and I just wrote this super important piece. And so that, you know, that's why, and, and by the way, no self-doubt, not like when I was an actor, you know? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. it's a road that brought you to where you were. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, you know, that it's, it's a story that is common with a lot of people. They try things, they don't work, you know? Um, you have to, and yeah. And they, they find something it, it's, it's just, it it got you to a very successful career as a writer. Um, one other last question or so here. Sure. Do you, do you believe in writer's block? Do you believe writer's block exists as a creator or is that just maybe an excuse that somebody might have to not sit down and write? I, and again, this is, it's a great, <laughs> I'm yeah. just curious. This is another question I like to ask, yeah. you know, because it's what you do, you know, and I am not, I don't. So. so here's here's my answer. I, I don't know. If somebody says they get it, I got to believe them. Fair enough. I, I generally, you know, don't get it. Now I will say there's maybe days where I don't feel like writing. Sure. But I don't think it's writer's block. And Okay, and, that was yeah. what answer I was looking for. And Doug Allen said the same thing. And others, it's like, I don't call it writer's block because it's like you just don't want to sit down and write. Yeah. And that's okay. Because it's a very arduous process. I mean, to like and personal. Get a show. It's personal too. Yeah, it's very personal. And to take something from nothing and turn it into an Emmy winning series or to even get it to the pilot stage is huge. Yeah. Um That's a great and, question. Uh, but again, you know, I don't want to be the one to tell a young writer who's on Twitter going, I I've had writer's block the last two weeks anybody else feel that like i don't want to say yeah. dude, 
just write. You don't have writer's block. Like, I don't want, like, whatever somebody's feeling. And that's the other thing, too. You know, writer's Twitter has exposed, you know, shown me. Like, I want to just tell people, like, stop, just write. Like, get off it. Stop asking everybody for advice. <laughs> like, and just do it. Like, when I started out, like, there was no internet the way it is now. You know, did I open my window of my apartment and yell out, do I? underline my slug lines or not somebody tell me like i just did stuff like just just do your thing like everybody's asking people like what do you think should i do this do you do this do you feel that there's nothing more important there's there's two things you know when people ask me you know uh, the only constants like everybody if, if you know, I was once addressing a Zoom of about 50 young writers and, and everyone's asking for advice. And what was your career path? And blah, 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 blah. And I said, you're going to meet all these people like me and we're all going to say stuff and we're all going to share our story. And then in 10 years from now, if 25 of you 50 have made it and are experiencing some success, and I ask all 25 of you that the road to that success, the path that led you to there, completely different. It'll have zero to do with what I said. And all 25 will be different. The only two constants that I tell people, and I told somebody this morning, so it's fresh in my head, write every day. It's the only job you can do every day without getting a check. And it sucks. And I know people have rent. And I know people, you know, they you got to make money. But you know, if you want to be a heart surgeon, you can't just show up at Cedars with a scalpel and go, hey, listen, I read a couple of books. I think I got this. Is there any ORs that I could visit? And maybe <laughs> can I just jump in? Just here jump real quick in. And... I got my scalpel it's sterilized. You can't. You got to go through the process and blah, 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 and get hired. Writing, you don't need to receive a paycheck to do it. And and so I tell people, write every day. And the second thing is, and it's the obvious, but it's network. It's, it's form that circle. That's, oh, that's huge. That that's support huge circle, hundred percent. Yeah. And they don't all have to be writers, but if you want to be a writer, it's probably not a great idea to, you know, hang around with a doctor, a construction worker and an accountant. It's probably not a great idea, but they don't have to all be writers. Somebody can want to be an agent. Somebody maybe wants to be a manager. Somebody wants to be in music. Somebody wants to go into wardrobe. Somebody, but but you all share that passion and 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 love and goal to make it in showbiz, the term that people don't use anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer if you want to be successful, and it's true, it's not trope. Just look at what other successful people are doing. Yeah. People look at you and they see all these things that you've done. And I don't think they want like a shortcut necessarily, but they kind of want to know how is this all going to work? Yeah. And it's like, well, let's find the, you know, beginning version of yourself or the middle version of yourself that maybe wants to, you know, can kind of tell you things. That's why when I talk to comedians and they always get asked, how do I do this or how do I do that? And every single time the comedian's like, I don't know what to tell you because I don't know how people do it now. Yeah. I can tell you how I did it when I started, uh, but um, it's just completely different. I mean, just, the, the, but you take a look at everything that you've done and you go, okay, there's a clear formula 
uh, an overnight success has taken 30 plus years or more to get to where you are. Um, you know, and even though like a lot of these writers that we've talked to on the past in the past who are now in the books and you want to write a show like, you know, 24, well, it's a an ensemble cast and you need to do this and do that. And, you know, people complain, well, how can this person, you know, write one thing and then it gets ordered to series. But then I come into a network with a show Bible with a 10 season arc and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't get anything. So you just got to keep going. I think that's the big takeaway from this conversation is that find something that you like. And if you're good at it, keep doing it. And then eventually maybe you'll get paid for it or they'll tell you you suck and that you decide uh, you want to do something else. And you write a show like boy meets world, boy meets girl. um, And uh, the rest is history. You you know, one of you mentioned the word shortcut and, and I do see a lot of young writers who are trying to do the thing where they write a pilot and they want to sell their pilot. Yeah. They want to find a showrunner to attach 99 times out of a hundred, you know, like I'm not going to give up what I'm doing to help run your show when you, you, you're not like, you, you're not even doing like the shortcut thing. Like, write a spec, get staffed, learn. Like, I do believe that is a more pure form for young writers out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of classes that help, you know, write comedy in 30 days. And and I don't think it's bad to necessarily look into those things. But like in this day and age, and everybody always says this with technology and cell phones, I, I mean, you can shoot an entire movie on a phone right now. I mean, it's like, do it get your work out there for people to see, start a YouTube channel. People just, I think, you know, I see this in my business as far as con podcasting and talking to people. They want like the easy way. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Or yes. They, they don't want to put in the, the difficulty of emailing agents or, or publicists and being told no, or, you know, well, how did you get Howie Mandel on your show? Four or five years of hard work of talking to people that I necessarily didn't want to talk to per se, but I was honing my skills and interviewing and talking to people and making connections. So I think the big lesson here is like hard work always, I think. Pays Absolutely. Off you know, and, and again, like I said, you know, when I started writing, I, I woke up every day and made sure I was at my computer by 9am. I treated it like it was a paying job. Yeah. Took a break for lunch. And then sat down and wrote again till four, four thirty every day. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's the old, it's a cliche, but it's so true. Uh, opportunity and preparation equals success. And so hundred percent, you know, and, and the preparation is, is everything. And, and what you said, Brett, you're so right on. Uh, I, I do meet a lot of people that are looking for that quick hire me, make my show. Why, why my idea is as good as, you know, that, or I came to somebody and I said, Hey, do a reboot of that show. And then they're doing wonder years reboot instead. Why not? My, like people, it, it, it's <laughs> the, the days of disc- And it's like you said, there's no overnight success. You know, somebody no. who all of a sudden we see as an actor, they've been working at it a long time in one way, shape or form. hundred percent. At some point, you know, 
Um, it's the same with writing. Like nobody writes their first script and, you know, somebody goes that we want to make that show. We're going to put you with David E. Kelly. He's going to run your show. You're going to get a <laughs> producer credit, five percentage points of ownership, back end ownership, and your career's made. That house you dreamed of when you were living in Ames, Iowa, or, you know, Norman, Oklahoma, whatever, wherever you were, that LA house, you go get it now. Cause we're going to give you the keys and the secret the next and your next made. dick wolf hit. Yeah. It's funny. Barry Katz told me, I asked him, I, I love said, Barry. I said, what, yeah. what keeps you motivated and going? He goes, to be honest, he goes a lot of things. But the big thing is, is that when I was little, I had a dream of living on a house on the beach uh overlooking the ocean and he goes i don't want anybody to take my effing house so i'm the trying the hardest working person in show business i mean he's one that has really sort of opened the curtain so to speak and showing people where the bodies are buried and he helps he's made so many people famous but he's he's kind of created this master class where you can sort of get the help that you might not get otherwise and you can spend time with him but even still you know, there's, you can do all that. And I think it's great to invest in yourself, but if you're listening and watching this, you know, hard work always wins yeah. the day. Like Shh, really. That's the secret. Shh, don't tell people hard work. You just gave up the secret, Brett. I know. Uh, <laughs> well, if you've never seen boy meets world, boy meets girl meets world, uh, or any of these other great shows, Meatballs. <laughs> we can forget about that summer. one. But uh, uh, Boy Meets World and Girl Meets World, if you got kids or you want to catch it, it streams on Disney+. Plus. Um, you know, that's the thing about Boy Meets World. Never, 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 not once, not for one single day, was it ever not available to watch from the time we went off the air. It was always on rerun somewhere. It was on MTV. It was on Family Channel. It was on Disney Channel. It, you know, it's never not been available. And there are very few shows that can boast that. So we're super proud. And it's real funny. We didn't realize while we were doing it what we were doing because there was no internet. There was no immediate. Yeah, you, know, you would really have no way of knowing other than maybe like fan mail. what test audiences yeah. might be thinking or fan mail. Yeah, fan mail. I love it. Yeah. Including such great yeah, shows, including yeah. uh, letters from prisons for for Topanga. We uh, security. Would, oh, I'm sure uh, there was a lot of that. Uh, but then we're doing Girl Meets World, and then all our fans started writing us and saying, "Thank you for this episode. Thank you for that episode. Oh my gosh, you affected me this way, that way," and and we just never knew when we were doing it. And now all these years later, you know, we're about to embark on the year 2022, and and I. You know, any young person when they find out that way back in the day, I, you know, and and, and I was really lucky that the, in that, I, you know, I, I probably wrote about 25 of the episodes um, and some of the best, I, I, I most widely, uh, you know, talked about and written about, um, you know, m- my name was on. And so I'm, I'm so thankful and so blessed. Wonderful. Mark, thanks for hanging out with us today. I appreciate it. This was a blast. Thank you, Brett. That brings today's show to a close. Goodly do. Thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share it with a friend and subscribe. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Autobots, roll out. Go home.